If you love Sports Bazaar, why wouldn't you want to sign up to Bazaar Plus, our membership program, for even more episodes? Just go to the link in the show notes to sign up. It's Sports Bazaar. Welcome aboard, everyone. Anyone isn't happy. We call it all off immediately. The hunt for the weirdest. There you go. Can you put out a fact sheet with this? <laughs> Blow my mind. I don't. I can't keep up. Strangers. Catastrophic, amazing, bizarre. Multiple layers of stupidity coming together. What could go wrong? Most unbelievable. It's like a Coen Brothers movie. Stories to ever occur. They're only going to get weirder from here. Get comfy, everyone. Some good, some bad. And some just bizarre, which we love. In the world of sport. How many chimneys could you do in a day? I've researched the tool. To France, not Chimney Sports Bazaar. Right, police are called in. <laughs> For the players. Dennis Rodman is telling you to calm down. Testicle soup. Can I just stop you for a second? Don't act like you've never done this. I feel like once again we've strayed away from what I've researched. It's time for the leaders of the hunt. An old couple who've got our spark back. <laughs> it's Titus O'Reilly and Mick Malloy. Welcome back to Sports Bazaar with me, Mick Malloy, and of course Titus O'Reilly who has us wading knee-deep through the murky waters of table tennis at the moment. <laughs> Which you always thought we'd be here at some point. It was inevitable. I doubted you that uh, such a trivial game could have such large ramifications for world politics. Yet I stand corrected because when we left the first episode, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, the Second World War had just finished and table tennis had positioned itself as the only sport in the world that could straddle the great divide that existed in the world at the time. Yeah, the Iron Curtain. The this Iron is the Curtain. time the Iron Curtain's There's coming up. A and... very small ball going <laughs> over and back and over and back of the Iron Curtain. And our protagonist, of course, has just come back from the Nuremberg trials. Yeah, I've Ivor Montague. What do we need to know going into this? Well, episode? he's been a Russian spy during World War Two. We talked about in the first episode, and it, suddenly he's gone to the Nuremberg trials. Yes. Covered that for the Daily Worker, which is a communist newspaper. <laughs> and then he comes back to London and it's the spring of 946 and he's like, it's time to get table tennis back up and running. Okay. Right? The war is now set it aside. Disposed of the war. The war is annoying. Let's get out of the way. So he reconvenes the ITTF, which is the Table Tennis International Federation. Sure. And he decides to revive the World Table Tennis Championships as soon as possible. And he lobbies really hard to get Russia into the next tournament which is the USSR by this point, because no other organization is really touching the, the USSR in a sports yeah. sense, but he's straight away into it. Alex Ehrlich, who we talked about, who played in, in that first episode, he's the guy who's doing the longest point ever, which went for two hours and 13 minutes. While eating his lunch and playing a game and of chess, chess at the same time. You know, yes. and doing all this, comes back into it. He was Jewish. He ends up during the war at Auschwitz. Amazingly, this okay. is where all the threads just run through table tennis. And he'd survived there. He would forage during work details to find food because they were obviously not feeding them yeah. or treating them well at all. And he found a beehive one day while out in the fields around Auschwitz working and he split the beehive in two. He stripped his clothes off. He rolled in the honey, so desperate for food. He dressed, walked back into the camp so that the guards didn't know he'd found this honey. Yes and gets back into where they're kept and he lets the other prisoners lick honey off his body oh to give God. them much-needed calories. So, like, just this amazing Incredible. guy. Despite this, his body weight halves over this time in Auschwitz. He ends up in the gas chamber at Auschwitz and he's about to be gassed, but a Hungarian guard had seen him play ping-pong in the 1930s and pulls him out. 
and he saves his life just because you'd recognize him as a table tennis champion. I am. This story is knocking me around. Which is amazing. So he survives Auschwitz because of that. So when the world championships get up and running again by 1948, there's Ehrlich standing behind the table. He's got his shirt sleeves rolled up. You can see his numbered tattoos from Auschwitz on his arms and he makes it to another semi-final despite all what's happened to him and then goes into coaching. So it's all this sort of stuff. At this point, though, Montague, he's got the world champions back up. The Iron Curtain's well and truly rising. So he starts resuming traveling around the world, reinvigorating table tennis behind the Iron Curtain offense. The whole time he's followed by MI6. So they're not letting up. They're not letting up, right. They're still convinced there's a table tennis connection or they're following him specifically. It describes it one bit. MI6 agents and MI6 who are investing a lot of time into following this guy, they find the sport as confusing as ever. They still cannot believe that table tennis isn't a front for communism because why would anyone be that into table tennis is their thinking, right? But the truth is Montague sees communism and table tennis going hand in hand. Great things that can cure the world deal, bring people together. Doesn't matter how big or small you are. Doesn't matter who you are. Anyone can play table tennis. It's it's the equal playing like communism. He sees it, yeah, Yeah. as not an elitist sport. He sees it as for anyone. MI six follow him all through Eastern Europe, and they cannot believe how smoothly his tour through Eastern Europe runs. Because at this time, it's hard to get visas and across borders and all this because the Russians are saying, like, stopping people. So this raises their suspicions? Well, they just can't believe it until they work out that the Soviet authorities are backing his tour through all Hungary and all all these places, right? So much so that British intelligence, though, they don't really know what to do about him because he's so connected in the aristocracy and the king's the patron of the Table Tennis Association. Yes. He falls into this gap where he's kind of, and he's quite open about being into communism, that they just sort of leave him alone. They follow him, but they don't find anything where he's doing anything, right? But it gets to the point in 1959, Montague receives the Lenin Peace Prize. It's the Soviet version of the Nobel Peace Prize. And he receives it, and on the day he receives it in 1959 in Russia, the other person receiving it with him, so two men receive it that year, is Nikita Khrushchev. Who goes on to become the head of Russia? This is not helping him get away with the idea that he's not a spy of some description. No, but he doesn't right? hide it. So they just sort of go, okay, well, we think he's a spy. So they don't think he's a threat because they all know he's got these communist Soviets. Sure. The announcer, when he wins the Lenin Peace Prize, says, although he was born into an aristocratic family, the life of this man is a vivid example of a progressive representative of the Western intelligentsia finding his real calling in joint struggle with the masses of the people. Intelligentsia being Intelligence his is his code, code name, name as a spy. So even the Russians are kind of doing a nod and a wink to MI6. <laughs> so it's just it's totally bizarre. This is hilarious. Like what, a, like what a life. At this point, we need to go to Japan because Japan has just gone through the wars, right, had the yeah. bombs dropped on them. And table tennis starts to take off at this point. They're looking for light relief, I'm guessing. They're looking for something to do. And in 1902, a university student had taken table tennis to Japan, so they knew about it. Yep. Montague, even here, he'd put his rule book. His parents loved Japan before the war in the 20s. It was their favourite country to visit. This is before things turned a bit nasty. And so he used to send, fill his parents' cases on their trip to Tokyo, this is the 1927, with his rule book he'd written about table tennis rules and they would distribute it in Japan. So even here, he's had a hand in Japan being interested. Where it was interesting is he's trying to get Japan to play it. He's trying to get every country to play it. 
He's helped in getting table tennis across the line by General Douglas MacArthur, <laughs> who is the, How, the general that led yes. the Pacific War and right. is in charge of Japan after the war okay. because the Americans stay in charge for a long time, make sure, rebuild the country and make sure it doesn't become an enemy again. And he agrees to lend his name to a table tennis tournament in 1947 called the MacArthur Cup. Yep. And so Japan have this one. Out of gratitude, the Japanese players draw brightly painted pictures of the general on one side of their panels because they paint their table tennis usually with wrestlers and glamour girls, but in this case they put the general, right? So in 1952, the Japanese who were rising in table tennis because it's the one sport allowed to sort of play, but also table tennis where it's so good and this becomes really important, it's cheap and easy. You don't need a big field. You don't need 18 people. You can put it in a a dormitory, a factory, yeah. wherever. So in a war-torn country, to play table tennis is the easiest sport almost to pick gotcha. up. So it takes off. And so they actually have a guy called Hirojo Sato of Japan. He starts to use wooden racket and he puts thick foam between the rubber and the wood, which is the table tennis bats we use today. And it massively increases speed and spin over just the normal rubber. What an innovation. Yeah, and so that was legal? legal. It wasn't controversial? Yep. He then in 1952 wins the world championship over a Hungarian and this becomes the period where Asia starts to dominate table tennis yes. up to 1989. That's the this modern is the world we point. associate it yeah. as that being the… An Asian game, not yeah. a European yeah. game. But at this point it had been a European game up until 1952. Gotcha. Out of Japan emerges this guy called Ichiro Ogimura. They call him Ogi. He's born in 1932. His father dies when he's two and his mother has to make all the money. So she works so much. Yes. She's not around. He becomes obsessed with table tennis in high school just as it's the year the MacArthur Cup is started. And he brings a new level of devotion to ping pong training <laughs> that has never been seen in the world before. Next right? level. And this is where the Asian countries start to really think. He would run for an hour each morning carrying in his right hand a stone that he thought weighed about the same as a table tennis racket. (laughs) He would then jump from a squatting position for a kilometre. So go down in a squatting position, jump, and he'd do that over a kilometre. He'd then hit a ball against the wall from five feet continually for hours. He'd skip rope, lift dumbbells. He'd go to a billiard parlour to study spin. Oh, wow. A friend called his self-imposed routine torturous and terrifying. I'm going to do this next time I go to my holiday house. <laughs> yeah, to you beat will, the kids. You will never beat me again. This um, is my routine. Apparently this made him absolutely manic. He'd put a fountain pen lid on the corner of a table and serve at it until he could knock it down a hundred times in a row. When he missed, he'd go back and start again. So he'd go, he got to 59 and missed. He'd go, all right, need to do 100 again. This is our golfer's putt. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? They'll yeah. do that practicing. They'll have yeah. tapped it 100 from... Two feet, 100 from three feet, yep. and 100 from four feet. And if they miss one, they and, go And back no one's done this in table tennis before, huh. right? So he then would try that exercise blindfolded. <laughs> this is insanity. He comes up with a thing called the 51% doctrine, which is a playing style, encourages aggressive play. So if there's a 51% chance or higher chance of playing an aggressive smash shot and it will win, yeah. so even if it's only a 51% chance, you, you play it. it. And so this is changes the game from like we're having the two around uh, two, two, two and this becomes the style that's adopted by all the world champions from him onwards to now. Is this a highly fast, aggressive style? If you see an opening, you pounce on you it. You pounce on it, right? You exploit that. 
1954, at the World Championships, you have individual and you have team. So countries play each other in teams. Yes. And you have a gold medal for the individualists. So it's sort of the World Cup of Soccer and yeah. Wimbledon in one. So he wins in 1954. He becomes the gold medalist for the individual in England. So it's 1954. The war's only nine years off finishing. Yeah. British public hate him, boo him. They, Why? They're like, you're a killer. They hate the Japanese. I mean, well, their soldiers have been still in. Still a bit raw. Yeah, they've, ta- they've defeated no, Singapore. And the Japanese were not gentle in the war towards right. prisoners of war and stuff like that. So this is still nine years in. So the people in the audience all fought in gotcha. World War I. He ends up winning and he gets hell. Ivor Montague's wife presents him with the trophy. And only at that point did the crowd give polite applause. But Oggy's manager then reaches into a bag for a Japanese flag for him to wave. And Oggy says, no, put it away. No. And this shows that he has got this diplomatic ability that serves him well going into the future, right, <laughs> that he starts to get involved in diplomacy. Are you telling me table tennis is now building a bridge we are going mending to, This is where we're going to get to when I say table tennis has the biggest impact on world history and politics oh than any other God. sport we're getting into. When he returns to Japan after winning the gold medal in Tokyo, and you've got to remember this is only, you know, not long after Tokyo and or has been firebombed. Hiroshima uh, has been nuclear bombed and they are just a decimated country. He is the first post-war hero of the country. The new airport has the biggest crowd welcoming back they've ever seen and he is celebrated. They call him the genuine national hero of post-war Japan. So he's huge. Incredible. So Japan are now become the dominant team in the 50s and 60s. At the same time, though, the communists under Mao Zedong have taken over China. Now, China has the biggest impact on table tennis and it is the biggest country in terms of table tennis to this day. Yeah. It had a long history. A Shanghai stationary shop owner was the first to bring the game to China in about 1910. And in 1916, there was the first ping pong house, but only rich people could really play it. At they the get time. sued for using that. I don't think in tile. China they worry about trademarks, <laughs> even to this day. 1936, a young American journalist who becomes very famous, uh, Edgar Snow, he's quite pro the communists. The communists are not in charge at this point. The, the right. nationalist leader, Chiang Kai-shek, is in charge of China. Okay. But they are fighting a civil war against him. Sure. So he goes there and he writes this famous book. I think it's called Red Star Over China and it becomes this huge book because he travels and meets all the communists across China. He is shocked as he travels across China in the communist control areas. Mm. And the Chinese are hiding out in caves. Communists are hiding out in caves being bombed at this point. Yep. And they have no airplanes or anything and they're like getting absolutely destroyed. He is shocked to encounter wherever he goes in communist controlled China is table tennis. Everywhere is table tennis. He can't believe how much they all play it no matter where they were to the point where Mao is said to have played table tennis during bombing raids inside one of the caves while they waited out the bomb, they would play. he would play table tennis. Okay. But at the time, before the communists take over, ping pong is ranked the 12th on the list of national sports in China behind jump rope. <laughs> Basketball is the clear favourite followed yes. by football. By 1949-1950, the People's Republic of China is formed as Chairman Mao mm-hmm. wins the war against Chiang Kai-shek who goes to Taiwan. Okay. Flees to Taiwan. So they suddenly, the communists are in charge of China. And within 12 weeks of this happening, Montague sits down and writes a letter of welcome to Chairman Mao's new government. He's seen an opening. And he's a communist. So he's quite thrilled to. That's a congratulations. No other Western body of any note 
at all, government or otherwise, is talking to China. Yeah. They don't even recognize that. They, they recognize Chiang Kai-shek in Taiwan is still the leader of China, even though he doesn't control China. Sure. They don't recognize him. So the only body in the Western world that talks to them is the Table Tennis Federation. <laughs> right? What is going on? In China, the sport is known as ping pang. Well, gets around the gets the, around the <laughs> certain <laughs> legal um, matters. He writes this letter to Mao saying, I think table tennis is the perfect way for you to display your young nation's prowess on the world stage. We will have you. We will want you. Mao Zedong thinks this is a good idea. You're the only sure. one being nice to me and will let an international sure. thing happen. Secondly, table tennis can be played in every factory. We've got no money. Yeah. It works perfectly with the they workers. They know well. It can be played in a cave. Yep, yeah, you can play at the factory. So this is a great way when you have a break, you play table tennis. Sure. And so they start to do it. So Montague visits China and meets Mao, visits it all, meets more. He receives VIP treatment at the national championships. China puts on the national championships. Mm. And in 1953, the People's Republic of China becoming an official member of the ITTF. It's the only international body they're a member of. Incredible. Mao diverts all resources into a national training program to identify and nurture the most talented players because he just thinks this is what we're going to be into. Yeah. Montague sees an opening and says, would you like Peking, as it was called then, now Beijing, to host the World Championships in 1961? And Mao says yes. This is incredible. It, right? No a diplomatic one is, olive branch. Yeah. But no backing from the US, England, anyone. Sure. It's just him and Mao setting this up. The Chinese decide it's time then, if they're going to host this in 1961, this is a big deal because the eyes of the world will be on them, even though it's table tennis. <laughs> so they start recruiting the top players from Hong Kong while they get their own system oh, up okay. and running. There's a guy who becomes one of the great heroes, Rong Gontan, and he's targeted in 1957. They said, come move to mainland China. Bit headhunted. And we'll look after you and you play tennis for us. He's installed in a large house. They take it so seriously, he gets given a huge house and finds out it used to belong to Chiang Kai-shek, so the former <laughs> president of China. So this is a table tennis Table player. tennis has moved in. In 1959, he goes to the World Table Tennis Championships in Germany and he wins seven straight wins and he gets gold. And he's the first world championship winner in any sport or in anything for the People's Republic of China. Okay. So he is a huge star. He receives the trophy from Ivor Montague. and Montague, MI6 will be fuming at yeah. this stage. And this is where Montague says, do you want to hold, host the world championship, which it goes. Mao calls Rong Gantan personally and describes ping pong as China's new spiritual nuclear weapon. This is how we show the world where, how good we are. The <laughs> best description of table <laughs> tennis ever. They launch a new company which still exists today called Double Happiness, which makes table tennis equipment. Yep. It's still around to celebrate it. It becomes so popular that Shanghai factories have to make 21 million table tennis balls in the next year. China's left the IOC and FIFA, so this is the only sport oh. they can play at the time. Mao, though, at this time, this is sort of 958, he's saying, right, we need to do everything to get ready for the 961 World Championships. The eyes of the world are on us. Yeah. But at the same time, he gets disturbing news. There is problems with grain in the country. There is not enough food in China. This is after he's collectivized all the farmland and gotcha. everything. And this leads to the deadliest famine in human history occurring in China between 1959 and 1961. 
15 to 55 million people are believed to have died from hunger. The meantime, while this is going on and they're trying to do this, they have to figure out how to also hide this from the world and host a table tennis tournament where the world will all be coming to. They have no grain. They have 21 no million ping pong balls. All the propaganda of China is now funneled towards two weeks in April 1961 where the international championships are going to be. He decides that we've got to hide the Great Famine from being spotted yep. by these guys and we have to win. If we're hosting it, we can't lose to Japan. We won in the gold individual, but we lost the team one. China has to win. So they say we are going to make sure every Chinese citizen is focused on table tennis. Now they're going through the Great Famine, but table tennis is... <laughs> park that for a minute. Just park that for we a minute. We need to win this table tennis tournament. They go across the country looking for any children with quick reflexes and excellent eye-hand coordination. And they begin a recruiting system that the Germans and the Soviets later use, which is this, you get them at five years old and you put them in a basically a training camp. They don't see their family and they just play table tennis from dawn to dusk you've got to like identify talent like some kid catching a fly with his <laughs> chopsticks <laughs> exactly. that would be the opening scene of the movie <laughs> oh this kid's good in shanghai alone three hundred thousand people play to test them to see if they're any good it happens in every other place one guy who goes on to become a world championship and is now a professor at peking university health science center says it's the perfect sport for the chinese physique this is a chinese guy saying this it is not important if you're strong. You've got to be smart and have good nerves. <laughs> so he sees that as the booming. Right. They go and recruit from Hong Kong a national coach, Fu Kui Fang. He's known as Fu. He's been recruited from Hong Kong to be the national coach. He's a bigamist. He has two families. He enjoys drinking and womanizing. Right? And table tennis. And table tennis. He's a great table tennis player. He's a table tennis Lothario. Yeah. Playboy. Yep. Not only is he sleeping around, he's got two families and they don't know about each Does other. Does he play table tennis in a robe, <laughs> smoking a pipe? He's in trouble trying to maintain two families because the only money he makes is from table tennis and it's not a high-paying sport. So the Chinese come to them and the Chinese have put in charge of this table tennis push Marshal He Long, who's one of the 10 marshals of China, one of the leaders of the Red Army, yep. goes on to become the vice president of China. So this is how big they're taking it, right? It's like if America put the vice president in charge of table tennis, right? So he goes to Fu and says, we know you've got two families and debts. We will pay off your debts. Choose one family and come live in China. <laughs> That's a fair deal. Yeah, fair deal. Here's some thinking music. So they do that. So he joins. The team's training schedule, once they have the team, they advertise to attract spectators so they get used to playing in front of a crowd. And so the same as a pack. The crowd is controlled by a PA system. They will say things like over the loudspeaker, now applaud for your Chinese team and the audience will clap and then they'll go, now be silent and they'll be silent and they'll go, now clap again. It's like a studio audience. Yeah, it's totally like bonkers. The real problem striking Marshall He Long who's running all of this for the government keeping the players fed because this famine is killing tens of millions of people and he's trying to feed them, right? Yeah. So he figures out as head of the sports ministry, he has a secret weapon to fight hunger, the international Chinese shooting team. <laughs> Are we going to go and watch shoot livestock He sends them or? into Inner Mongolia, a dozen hours drive from Beijing, to hunt yellow goats. Once they have plenty of goat meat, they then barter some with the Mongolians to get extra eggs. 
They bring this all back and feed the table tennis players. <laughs> As a first priority. <laughs> These tubby little you... table tennis players in famine-stricken China. That's right. And they're all stressed. It's sort of status, wouldn't it? Well, they're getting letters from their family going, do you know what's going on and that? And they're feeling all guilty. But what do you do? You, you, they'll kill you if you leave, right? Pass the Mongolian goat. Yeah. Now, this is how full-on the Chinese are about this when you compare to everyone else. This is a bit later, but a Japanese player passes through Beijing on a tour in 1962 and comes up against a player who's a second-ranked Chinese practice player. So this is a guy who's never played at the top level. Right. And he realizes this guy plays exactly like me and says this to him and the guy goes, yeah, my job for the last 10 years has been to learn your style back to front so the other Chinese players can play me and learn to beat you. Wow. So they have players trained up purely like a sparring partner and they're told you're never going to win you can't win you can't play you've got to perfect this guy's style so we can figure out how to beat him yeah gotcha 1961 world championship comes around the famine is starting to end china's built the world's greatest table tennis stadium and they're hosting 33 countries so they suddenly play their first round match against the Cubans who are fellow communists. And the Chinese players begin ruthlessly. They win 21-0, 21-1, 21-0. And the Chinese public are cheering so loudly because they've had not a lot to cheer about. And this is a huge deal. Because they've been instructed to over a loudspeaker. Well, no. Then a message comes over the loudspeaker. It says, be careful. Your reaction could be misconceived as inhospitable to the fellow communists. Could you please begin to cheer both teams evenly? And the other international athletes can't believe it because the crowd in America, if you said that, they'd just boo and yeah. cheer, do the opposite. The audience instantly starts, starts doing it. cheering perfectly. At the 961 World Championships, as they're going on, they come up against Japan in the final. Ichiro Ogimura, Ogi, our obsessive table tennis player. Here we go. This is what it's all about. He plays and loses. Rong Gonton, he loses in the team event. So it comes down to this new guy called Zhang Zedong. Young guy, he's not known. He's born in Beijing. The whole hopes of China are on him. Uh, on if, he does, if he loses the next match, they lose. If he wins, they win gold against the Japanese. And this is all what the country's been building towards. So, you know, we talk about in Australia, Kathy Freeman's pressure she was under, the whole nation behind her or certain, you know. There'd be greater pressures here too. Here they drag you out and shoot you if you don't perform. So he's under enormous pressure. He'd been born in a Beijing alley. So poor he didn't have a table. He just hit balls against the wall. He held... His bat like a pen. I know that. What's, what do you call that grip? It's a pull pen grip. So the Asians use a pen grip. Yes. The Westerners use that normal Normals. racket grip. The problem with the pen grip, while it's fast and easy, anyways, you can't do a, a power on the backhand side. Mm-hmm. He had learned to counter this by using short, devastating sort of backhand blows, which he'd modeled on martial arts punches. Mm-hmm. And this makes him the greatest player almost of all time, people. The know. goat. He's the, the goat. Table tennis the table goat. tennis. He goes on and beats Japan and they win. It's a huge propaganda win. What a moment. Yeah. He secures the title at the next two consecutive world championships. It's every two years, so he wins 63 and 65. He's in his mid-20s. He appears to be on the verge of being Uh, the biggest table tennis. It's like unbeatable. But in the spring of 1964, the National Sports Commission's a bit worried that the Chinese women are not going to do well at the World Championships. So they decide to get a guy called Yu Hingsheng, who's the top men's double player, yes. to give them a speech, the women's team. He doesn't realise, but it's been written down what he says. The speech is typed up. It's all about table tennis and how to succeed. It's been written for him? 
No, he just does know. it off the cuff. Okay. But someone writes it down as he's saying it. Yes. He doesn't realize this, but the speech gets typed up and sent to He Long, the marshal in charge of all of this. He makes a few notes in the margins and sends this speech to Chairman Mao. Mao adds a few notes of his own in the border and puts the comment at the bottom that he had not read anything so good for years. What he talks about is a ball game. What we can learn from it are theory, politics, economy, culture, and military affairs. If we do not learn from the young generals, we shall be doomed. Now this table tennis. This sixteen-page tract, which has now got Mao's notes next to it, and is a table tennis speech, becomes entitled "On How to Play Table Tennis" and is sent to the highest officials in every province, and they're told they have to read it. Within a week, the entire speech is reprinted in the People's Daily. Millions of copies of it are distributed and sent around. Mao made everyone read it. A retired official explained, and I mean everyone. Can I just say, you know, my version of that speech. (laughs) How to play table tennis? It's really simple. Get there early, get the good back. Thank you. So this document is at a time where Chairman Mao is under a lot of threat from other top Chinese communists and his position is precarious. And he basically uses the young people, which this speech talks about, as saying the young people need to stand up to their elders and continue the revolution. This idea that we're going to just get comfortable and and not be communists is not true. We've got to continue the revolution. This leads to what's known as the Cultural Revolution, which is well known, where young people called the Red Guards, absolutely fanatically aligned to Mao, start attacking authority figures everywhere. They kill them, they beat them up, they make them confess to crimes. It sets China back years, right, as this happens. And this is all, some people say, kicked off by this table tennis speech. But really it's one bigger things. There's like Sun Tzu Art of War and How to Play Table Tennis. Are you saying the defining kind of philosophies? Is a table tennis book. In 1966, as the Cultural Revolution sweeps China, total chaos, people dying everywhere, sporting institutions are declared a bastion of anti-Maoist revisionism and are to be dismantled. China doesn't take place in international table status for the next five years. Mm. People are denounced and suddenly Fu Quanfang, you know, the coach with two families, yes. another national team member, Yang Yuning, and Rong Ngatan, the first ever gold medalist in yeah. table tennis, Chinese hero, they are all tortured and convicted of spying because they've met foreigners. So all three hanged themselves by suicide in 1968. What? Rongatan suicide note said, I'm not a spy. Please do not suspect me. I have let you down. I treasure my reputation more than my life. So table tennis has just absolutely been destroyed. Zhang Zedong, who's the greatest of all time and was on and he's dragged on stage in front of 10,000 people. He's interrogated in front of them. He's beaten, tortured. He has his head shaved. And he looks like going the way of the others. But he forms an alliance with a member of the Gang of Four, which is a faction headed by Mao's third wife. And rumours of an affair between him and her start up. But he is the only one that makes it out of the Cultural Revolution and ends up becoming the sport minister and then elevated to the central committee of the Chinese Communist Party. At this point, Montague retires. It's 1968. I wonder what would happen to Montague. And after China suddenly going through all this, he finally retires. And like a true spy, he basically just disappears from view at this point. That's it. He watches from the sideline what is now going to be the greatest moment 
of table tennis diplomacy and history. This is where it gets in. This is known as ping pong diplomacy and it's a well-known thing. People would have heard that phrase, but what happens is the Cultural Revolution begins to wind down because Mao's gotten rid of all his enemies. So he starts to say the Red Guards, calm down. But the Chinese have also fallen out with the USSR, their fellow communists, and they think the Russians are going to either invade them or cause all sorts of problems. So Mao starts to think, an alliance with the USA may be a good way to protect China from the Russians. At the same time, President Nixon, <laughs> yet to be disgraced, yes. is trying to figure out how to get out of the Vietnam War. And he's thinking, could the Chinese actually be helpful here with the North Korean communists to bring them to the negotiating table? If I could only figure out a way to yeah. become friends with China, it might also mean the Soviets have to be nicer to us because it halves their communist bloc. But Mao and Nixon both have interesting concerns. Mao knew the idea of befriending the Americans would get him torn down by the radical left. So they're the American dogs and traitors. Gotcha. Nixon's worried that his right wing hate the red Chinese and communists and think if he goes and starts to be nice to China, it'll yep. be the end of him. They don't know this how to get around this. And the answer, of course, is table tennis. <laughs> I can't believe what I'm hearing here. <laughs> the Japanese champion, Oggy, he'd been begging the Chinese premier, this is his diplomatic <laughs> streak, Zhu and Lai, to allow the Chinese national team to come to the 1971 World Table Tennis Championships in Nagoya, Japan. He's saying, come, time mm. for you to end your exile five years. Cultural revolution, come. No one wants to make the decision to do this because they think, well, they've just gone through the cultural revolution where everyone's been killed, yeah. right? So you, you, you've been careful. Mao, though, finally says, overrules it all and says to Zhu, let's do it. Send the team to Nagoya. He says, Japan, though, are a right-wing country and hate communists, which was true at the time. Yes. Tell the table tennis players to prepare for death. Mao says, there's a healthy chance of a bombing or an assassination. Mao says to Zhu, who's the prime minister, we should be prepared to lose a few people. Of course, it will be better if we don't. <laughs> <laughs> the stakes are high. So suddenly the Chinese are off in 971 to Nagoya. At the same time, we now need to talk about America. America are not a table tennis playing nation. No. The state of US table tennis is terrible. In 971, before the World Championship, they'd have to choose the team, the US Nationals are played, mm. to decide who to sell. It's in Atlanta. The first humiliation comes as the competition show up. They find they've been displaced from the main auditorium in Atlanta by a little-known wrestler called El Mongol who's booked booked out out the main auditorium. So they're in this side thing, right? Second, the floors had been waxed just before so that the players were sliding into the cardboard hoardings playing because you couldn't stand still. They're so slippery. The play was divided between two different floors separated by a maze of passageways, so most players can't even find their tables and get scratched, and no one shows up. There's no crowd. It's a debacle. There's no media coverage whatsoever. No one even knows it's on in America. Amongst these players is a guy called Glenn Cohen. He's grown up in New York and before moving to California. He is a stereotypical, because this is in the 971, he is like if you went to Central Casting and said, give me a Californian hippie. Gotcha. Long blonde hair, <laughs> tie-dye, hey. literally wearing tie-dye bell-bottoms all the time, like apps flares, you know. He grew up in New York, though, where he played, there's one club that was a big, it's the basement of the Riverside Plaza Hotel. It is a rough place. This is the office of the Chinese. It's mm. smelly, filthy, undersized playing area, poor lightning, a bathroom that looked like it hadn't been cleaned ever. 
Parents would drop their children off in the afternoon and they'd be horrified to return to find their teenagers playing poker with men in their 30s and 40s. (laughs) Wow. This is where Glenn's growing up, right? Table Tennis Topics, which is a magazine in the US, not a widely read one, (laughs) explains most table tennis locations were in skid row type locations. This naturally produced good table tennis. In order for the player to get to their clubs, they inevitably developed great reflexes. They can't help it. Avoiding muggers, rioters, falling buildings. <laughs> can't help but improve your footwork, coordination, and general speed of reaction. That's the academy, is it? Avoiding being mugged. So uh, this is the team that is going to Nagoya and the Chinese are going to be there. Sure. To settle geopolitical politics. Well, they don't know this at this point. Glenn Cohen, the hippie, who takes drugs, is like a total loose cannon. He goes there, and early in the tournament, one of the top players in China, Liang Giling, he is about to step away from the table while practicing when before him appears Glenn Cohen, who is this hippie. So you've got this Chinese who's neatly dressed, fit, spent his whole life learning to play table tennis against this drugged-up hippie, right? World's colliding. World's colliding. Glenn Cohen gestures for Liang to practice with him. Liang's horrified, partly because Americans are the enemy. Sure. American dogs, they call them. Yeah. Down with the American dogs, they say. So he thinks he's going to get in trouble. But he's even more worried because he, he says he was a really bad player. <laughs> he thought of him inviting to play with him was an insult to him. <laughs> so he retreats and asks the Chinese official, am I allowed to play with this right. American? They don't know what to do, and they're worried they'll get shot if they make the wrong decision. Right? So, they, that one yeah. the so they go, play with him short for a short bit and then excuse yourself. So he does. But this gives the Chinese delegation an idea that this Glenn Cohen might be a way to bridge an American-Chinese relationship in an area that is not going to cause too many ripples. Sure. So the next day, Glenn Cohen walks outside the practice hall after a game. He's already been knocked out of the tournament because yep. he's hopeless. Compared to the Chinese, right? Yeah. And there's a bus waiting and he gets on thinking it's one of the shuttle buses, but it's not. It's the Chinese bus. Only the Chinese have their own bus because they're under such security because the Japanese hate them. And he goes up and gets in and he realises as the bus drives off that it's full of communist Chinese. These countries hate each other, you know. They don't have any diplomatic relationships. There's minutes of silence pass as they stare at him and he stares at that. He then decides, well, I'll talk to them. He sees Zhuang Zidong, the best player ever there, and he diffuses it by saying, through the interpreter who's there, I know all this, my hat, my hair, my clothes look funny to you, but there are many, many people who look like me and who think like me. We too have known oppression in our country and we are fighting against it. But just wait, soon we will be in control because the people on top are getting more and more out of touch. So he's giving a hippie it's speech, revolutionary right? Like, kind of the Chinese don't understand him. Well, they think they're talk- he's talking about bringing the cultural revolution to America. <laughs> so they're like, what the hell is going on? But during this, Zedong gets up and walks forward and everyone's going, don't talk to the American, don't do it. And he comes up and he walks to the front and he gives him a gift. It's a silk screening portrait of mountains in China. Yes. Shakes his hand, gives him the gift. Even now, Zedong says, um, years later, I can't forget the naive smile on his face. The interpreter says, do you know he's giving you this gift? And Cowan says, sure, it's Zedong, the greatest champion ever. I hope you do well this week. They step off the bus and cameras catch them 
with the gift and talking to each other. Sure. And this gets splashed all over the media as this first time Americans and Chinese are talking <laughs> like to each other. Like a sit down, like a summit. Yeah. What Cowan doesn't know is this has been set up by the Chinese. The bus waited for him. It wasn't an all accident. Right. He's walked into a trap. He's walked. Well, they see him as a useful idiot. <laughs> <laughs> the next day he goes and gives a Let It Be Beatles yes. T-shirt and this is also photographed by everyone. And suddenly Mao is thinking, should I invite the Americans to China to play table tennis, which would be a huge diplomatic mm. breakthrough. There's no contact yeah. between these countries. Americans don't get into China. It's like it. North Korea now. Finally, the invitation comes through. Mao's 74 and he's got ALS, which is a sclerosis, and he has to take sleeping pills at night. And... They're all saying you've got to either invite the Americans now or not. And he takes these pills and he's given orders that once he's taken his sleeping pills, yeah. anything he says should be ignored because <laughs> they'd make him a bit silly. <laughs> so he said during the day, don't invite the American team to China. It's yeah. too risky. But as he begins to doze, he calls the nurse and says, invite the American team to China. Now we've got a problem. And she says, you've uh, taken your pills. Should I listen to you and he said go and do what I ask you and she says please say it again he says invite the American team to China and she says you've taken your sleeping pills do these count and he says yes they do do it quickly otherwise there won't be time and an emergency message is set through all the contacts to <laughs> Nagoya to invite the Americans table tennis team to China and this is the breaking of the ice between the wow. Americans and the Chinese Henry Kissinger who's the Secretary of State <laughs> yes. under Nixon suddenly finds out that this table tennis team has been invited and are going to be the first contact with China they've had in decades. What's his attitude? Is he, he furious suddenly says, or is he... who are these guys? Yeah. We don't know them. Diplomats are vetted for years. Are there arrests out for some of them? Are they child molesters? Who are these guys? That's yeah. what he says. So this trip is decided to go ahead and the Americans go, we didn't ask to go but we've been invited and it's the table tennis authorities deciding, not the government. Right, so suddenly these guys who are hippies and all this are doing all the the head of the table tennis <laughs> team. The diplomatic, they're the diplomatic channels voyage. between in the middle of the Cold War between the wow. communist Chinese and and the Americans. Glenn Cohen's obviously going, and they're in <laughs> Hong Kong the night before, and they can't find Glenn. So they're all panicked because going to China, it's a violent, dangerous place. Everyone else is panicked. Cohen's remains so relaxed the night before in Hong Kong. He goes to a bar picks up a local prostitute for $12, smokes dope, ends up at her apartment. Mm. He relies on her to wake him up in time for his trip. The alarm goes off at five. He's about to be the centre of the biggest <laughs> diplomatic sort. The US spies are going, what have we gotten ourselves into? They know all this. They're all following him. They're going, this is worrying us. He gets back at 5.30 in the morning to his hotel. They are absolutely panicking. He's dressed as they go into China in a Let It Be shirt, which he decides is his trademark, <laughs> a yellow floppy hat and purple tie-dyed pants. Dear, and oh dear. They start to worry because he's desperate for publicity and they go, this could be a problem. Another teammate, John Tanhill, he's a quiet guy. At Customs House at the border, as they go into China, he finds a copy of Mao's On the Correct Handling of Contradictions Among the People, which is a book. He reads it on the train as they go to Beijing and declares it one of the best books I've ever read. So suddenly the US diplomats are going, 
We've got a guy who's converted to communism <laughs> on the train ride in and a guy that goes and visits prostitutes <laughs> yeah. the night before who wants a crowd, right? <laughs> they arrive and Americans are still hated. Mao hasn't said you can love the Americans. Americans yeah. are imperialistic dogs. Sure. You should hate them. So the public hasn't shifted their mind, said even though Mao's sort of so melting the eyes. Well, it's not. Cowan doesn't get politics at all. He takes drugs all the time over there. Yeah. He walks around whistling at the girls in China, following down the street. Okay. At one point, he got Jack Howard, another teammate, to play a game of imaginary ping pong with him in the street, which attracts a huge crowd and stops traffic until the meanest looking guy in China came along and made them stop. <laughs> <laughs> a bit of mime. Table tennis, which has had no coverage in America for decades. Yeah. On the first day, five articles alone are in the New York Times. On day two, it's eight articles. Yes. They are on the front page of everything. These guys, Cowan and Tannehill, are huge, huge fans. Tannehill, by this point on the second day, decided that the all truth lay with Mao. He's fully converted to communism. He says Mao is the greatest moral and intellectual leader in the world today. He reaches the most people and influences the most people. His philosophy is beautiful. He says this to the American press. This is not going well. This is not going well. He then gets food poisoning Tannehill and spends the night in Chinese healthcare. And from there, he decides he's not into communism so much. Once he gets a <laughs> like look he's at just the- turned around. So in three days, he's gone from moving. He's had a dodgy meal and he's back. The Americans start playing the Chinese. The Chinese, who could have beaten them all 21 0. Yes let them win occasionally and not humiliate them. And Very the Americans don't get this is happening. They think they're playing really they're well. They're going all right. And the Chinese are almost like going, this is this. humiliating, right? But Mao has told the team, don't humiliate them. Yeah. So this is how it works in the thing. The head of the US table tennis table, finally they fly out and he arrives back in Japan, mm-hmm. is debriefed by the ambassador in Japan and the security agencies, is carrying a message from Zhu and Lai, the premier, directly from government to government, saying he wants you now to invite the Chinese to America. So this is broken. This is still making Nixon nervous, but a Gallup (laughs) poll comes out and it says for the first time ever that because of this ping-pong tournament travel through China, it's humanised Chinese to the Americans and a Gallup poll finds that for the first time ever a majority of Americans in favour of China being included in the United Nations. What? (laughs) Nixon writes, I had never expected that the Chinese initiative would come to fruition in the form of a ping pong team. In 1972, just after this, President Nixon visits Beijing and it becomes this hugely successful ping pong diplomacy. Ping pong diplomacy. Mao dies in 1976 and within a month, Amin sees Zedong, the greatest player of all time, because he's ponied up with Mao's third wife. When Deng Xiaoping becomes the new premier, he had been deposed by Zedong as sports minister and sent into exile. He gets his revenge. He sends him to a rural prison camp for the next four years where he has no contact with the outside world. He's publicly denounced for among things such as wearing a Swiss-made watch. (laughs) He's not released to 1980 where he has another five-year spell in internal exile and then he eventually returns to Beijing where he coaches table tennis and sort of dies in obscurity. Glenn Cohen returns to America after being front page of all international media everywhere (laughs) and tries to start a TV career 
which doesn't work. And everyone in America goes back to not caring one iota <laughs> about table tennis. He completely starts to lose it and starts to suffer mental illness. He becomes homeless and spends his last days believing he co-wrote many of the Rolling Stone songs and that they're about to reform with him playing with them. He may have syphilis. <laughs> yeah. He died in 1924. Wow. And that brings us to the end of just ping pong diplomacy. That is extraordinary. Yeah. I was cynical going in. I, I doubted <laughs> you, Titus, but that is an epic tale that goes to the very top to geopolitical Political politics, every cultural. We chucked on who do we have? We had H.G. Wells, Alfred Hitchcock, Charlie Charlie Chaplin, Chaplin. FDR, Mao, Stalin. You know, there's not many we didn't mention. (laughs) Funnily enough, we've got one more episode to go on table tennis. Oh, really? Give us a hint. What's happening? we're, We're going to pivot from politics to what becomes one of the craziest stories in all of sport. Yes. Where Suddenly it is discovered a way to basically cheat in oh, table I, tennis I, I, I love this. that leads to 20 years of some of the most dangerous things happening in sport ever. <laughs> I cannot wait. Thank you once again, Titus O'Reilly. If you want more Sports Bazaar, simply go to any of our socials, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok. We've got the whole lot. And we also have Bazaar Plus, our membership program, where you can get even more content. The link to that is just in the show notes. Cheers.